0: Thanks, Chris, and uh, good morning, everybody. One of our values as a church is to bend toward the generation behind us, and this morning, a couple opportunities to do that in ministry throughout the summer as we uh, minister to kids, and we have lots, as uh, Jennifer said, you saw up there, lots of different opportunities for you to take on as much as you want. You can take on uh, two months' worth of the summer or two weeks, depending on your schedule and availability. But we have lots of ways to serve our kids, and we're really looking for uh, all, all hands on deck to help us, even if you've just uh, signed up for a couple Sundays. And then there's foster care opportunity. Over 100 kids in our valley Part of the foster care system, and this county is desperately underserved when it comes to foster care. So, man, just some great opportunities to make a difference. I hope that uh, you'll latch on to at least one of these opportunities and make it part of uh, what you're doing to uh, help the glory of God fill this valley like the waters fill the sea. It's part of our vision to reverberate in this valley and to bring calm and grace and saving grace to the lives of the 50,000 people that we share this valley with. So uh, we are always on mission, and there's always things to do, and there are always ways for us to engage and show our love for God by showing our love for people. So I hope that you'll be really paying attention, really paying attention to opportunities that you can either, you know, we say either... uh, Scratch an itch or fill a niche. Maybe you've got a unique talent you want to use, that's fill a niche. But sometimes what we just need is you to scratch an itch, and anybody can do that, you know. And so I want to encourage you to look for those opportunities. Well, I'm excited to be able to uh, be with you this morning and to uh, share. This is going to be a different kind of a message. Every once in a while, we have to have a talk like the one we're going to have this morning. And, uh, it's just a little bit different and it's going to require a lot of focused attention on your part and on my part. So we're going to get right with it. We're in the middle of a series called uh, Yeah, But, and talking about some controversial things because Yeah, But is about uh, uh, those times when you like Jesus or for those people who like Jesus but still have questions. Uh, and the purpose of these four Sundays is to help people in this category. You like Jesus, you like his teachings, you think he's, you know, he's okay, but you've got these other things that go along with him that you don't think are okay. They bother you. Uh, last week we talked about Christians are hypocrites. And uh, that that's some baggage that some people say, I like Jesus, but Christians are hypocrites. We talked about that last week. If you were here, you remember. Hopefully, if you weren't here, you can always get that on, your, on the Trinity app or look it up online if you want to hear a little bit about that. Uh, Next week, we're going to talk about the relationship between the Bible and science. I like Jesus, but man, I like science too, and I don't see how those two things go together. We're going to talk about that, but today, we're going to talk about Jesus and the Bible. Jesus and the Bible, because as you might suspect, if you like Jesus, pretty soon, you're going to have to grapple with the fact that Jesus liked the Bible, Jesus liked the Bible. Now, he didn't have the whole Bible, but he did have the the whole, what we call the Old Testament. Jesus had the whole Old Testament, and it was the centerpiece of Jewish life and worship 2,000 years ago. And uh, Jesus clearly liked the Old Testament. He uh, quoted it frequently. He taught from it. He used it to prove arguments and make points. He, His ministry and his teachings are all just saturated, soaked with the Old Testament. And uh, Jesus clearly believed the Old Testament. He clearly believed it, and he held it in high regard. And, and he took it seriously. So you've got Jesus, he loves the Old Testament. And then as for the New Testament, it came into existence in the decades after Jesus' ministry. Just in the decades after Jesus' ministry, as the people who knew Jesus began to write down what the, the things that he had said and done. They began to write those things down. These people who had hung with Jesus at, at a certain point began to record uh, what, what he had said and done. And it's actually because of them that we know about Jesus and the movement that he, that he started. So if you like Jesus, uh, the very fact that you can like Jesus, you owe to these people who wrote down the things that Jesus said and did. Otherwise, you wouldn't know... Anything about Jesus, so you actually owe something to this thing called the New Testament too, because it's the very means by which we know anything about Jesus. And so it's just hard to get around it. If you like Jesus, Old Testament and New Testament. If you like Jesus, at some point you're going to have to make peace with those two, with those two units of this book that together we call the Bible, because this book is so important to knowing who Jesus is and and uh, knowing what what he appreciated so at some point if you take jesus seriously you're going to have to take the bible seriously too and that might bother you that might bother you because when i talk to people uh it, it, there are parts of the bible there are things about the bible that bother them and i think there are basically three that we're going to try to touch on this morning uh, first of all people are bothered by how we got our bible That bothers people. second thing is uh, not how we got our Bible, but what it says. And the third thing that bothers people is what it means by what it says. And so I want to talk about each of those three things, and that's going to take us really getting on it this morning. And so we're going to do that, and we're going to touch a little bit on each of these areas. And if any of these areas, there is more information, there is more you could learn. And if you want to contact me, I'll be happy to put you in in, uh, contact with... How you can learn more about any of these uh, three areas, but the first one that bothers a lot of people is how we got our Bible. How we got our Bible? Thanks. There, there's one thread that's going to run through a lot of our conversations this morning, and that is a lot of the uh, how how honest how, how dishonest a lot of critics are in representing some of these things we're going to talk about this morning. Very dishonest. And one of those areas of dishonesty, uh, there's a lot of intellectually dishonest teaching about how we got our Bible. Because there are a few high profile personalities, and some of them actually academics, who want you to think that the Bible is just an amalgamation of religious opinions and am- an amalgamation of the church's uh, preferred teaching. Uh, an amalgamation of sloppy religious opinions that have been thrown together over centuries by scribes and monks that nobody even knows who these guys were. And, and they were just uh, irresponsible people who put, wrote in what they wanted to write in. and, and uh, that, So that finally someone put a stop to it and said, no more of that. And, and wherever it stopped, all that addition and editing, wherever it stopped, that's what became our Bible. So that's what a lot of people would like to have you think. That would mean, if that was true, that the Bible is filled with bad history written by people who didn't know anything about it, Any, anything that happened. It would mean that the Bible is filled with religious opinions, the opinions of people we don't even know who they were, and they had no business writing in their preferred idea of who Jesus is. That's what it would mean. And it would also mean that uh, the Bible that we have today isn't anything like the the documents that were originally written because they've been changed over time and everybody wrote in their two cents and erased the parts they didn't like and added the parts that they did like and they thought it should have been like this even though it wasn't and so all we have really is 2,000 years of the telephone game. That's what our Bibles are, you know, 2,000 years of this change and then that change and this and so there's no correlation. Between the Bible we have today and the Bible, or the, the actual books of the Bible. You know, the Bible's not one book. It's 66 different books that have been collected together between two covers. And so that's what a lot of people would like for you to think. They would like for you to think that. And I've done a fair amount of teaching on this subject over the years. I have devoted whole messages to what is this morning just going to be part of my message. I, if you're interested in this subject, I'd love to put you in contact with some great research and even some of my messages maybe that might help you. But here's what it boils, here's what it boils down to. And if you want that, you would just make a note on your connection card this morning. But here's what it boils down to. The Bible we have today is the Bible that they had back then. That's what it boils down to. The New Testament. The New Testament is based on a plethora. I don't get to use that word very often, and I want to use it this morning because it accurately describes the, the, the number of different manuscripts, a plethora of manuscripts from the, uh, with the New Testament, thousands of manuscripts. With very small and unimportant differences, so thousands of manuscripts—they go to within decades of when the original document was written. Like, uh, take the Gospel of, of uh, John or the Gospel of Mark. I mean, we have we have manuscripts that go to within decades of when those originals were written, and you know that originals they don't last for very long, and so they're they're written and then they're copied from over periods of time, and we can go to within decades of when these documents were written and not only that but we have so many of them we have just thousands of them and they come from they have different lineages you know these guys copied these over here and these guys copied these over and and uh, are there differences between them yes there are differences but here's the beauty is that you can because you have all these different manuscripts you can actually take them you can compare one to the other and you can go back you can figure it all out you can you can just with a little bit of careful attention you can determine you know and, and the changes the, the differences between these manuscripts these guys would have you think that there are giant significant doctrinal differences that that uh, might you know if if uh, you could find the right document and prove that Jesus never existed or he never rose from the dead or you know uh, these are spelling errors. There. Oops! I left out that little word, you know, and I, I my eye skipped a word. And these guys, it didn't. You could tell what word was skipped. I mean, here's what you can do: you can, with a high level of confidence, there's so much research, so many qualified people working in this field. You can, with a high level of confidence, know exactly, determine exactly, the the words that were used in the New Testament in each of these letters. And even when, there, even when there's some uncertainty, it's almost always represented right there in your Bible. No one's trying to hide anything. It's like, well, some manuscripts say this. Okay, you know, I mean, it's right there. No one's trying to hide anything. The, there's a high level of confidence of exactly what these original manuscripts said, with just minor variations. That's the New Testament. The Old Testament is its own special story. Uh, the Old Testament, you know, is thousands of years old. It predates Jesus and his ministry. And uh, thanks to, you know, the oldest, the oldest Hebrew manuscripts that we had access to 100 years ago took us to about 1,000 years ago. We could go back, with our Greek manuscripts, we can go back almost 2,000 years with our Hebrew manuscripts, even though they're older, we could only go about, back to about thousand aD. And after that, because Jewish uh, scribes were much more meticulous in their recording, and when they were done copying from one old manuscript to the new one, they'd burn the old one. Greek manuscripts they kept them, they wrote on the other side of them, you know, they erased what they had and tried to write over, and you can kind of erasers and all that. Hebrew scholars, they burned out of out of respect. They burned the old manuscripts. So we could go back to about 1,000 A.D., but then after that, there'd be dragons. You know, nobody knows what was on the other side. And 100 years ago, you had scholars saying... You can't know the Old Testament we have today. We only know about a thousand years of its history. And after that, you know, there, were, there must have been these people with additions and uh, uh, changes. And, you know, that's what they wanted you to think. And then what changed it all was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls about 70 years ago. A Bedouin shepherd finds a cave. This would be my dream, right? <sighs> He found a cave with uh, filled with clay vessels. And in these clay vessels were ancient scriptures. Ancient, it's the Old Testament and some other writings. The Old Testament. And, and it's from Jesus' day. And even a little bit before some of it. 250 B.C. So 250 years before Jesus. These old, old... And all of a sudden we close... We, and everybody got nervous. Uh-oh. Now we're going to make a thousand-year jump. From 1,000 AD back to Jesus' time, and I wonder what our Old Testaments really said. You know, after 1,000 years, and you made this 1,000-year jump, and they began reading these old, ancient documents and realizing, man, they line up exactly with the, with the Hebrew manuscripts that we have today. With just, sure, some difference, yes, some differences, some changes, a word here, or a little part of a passage there. All of that still represented in our Bibles today. You can find out where those places are. You read your Bible in your Old Testament, it says some Dead Sea Scrolls say this, right? It's all right there. No one's trying to hide anything. But you go back a thousand years, this amazing level of correspondence. It's remarkable. It really is remarkable, and it, it turned a lot of scholarship or, or alleged, it turned a lot of speculation on its head and shut a lot of it down. That the Old Testament scrolls, the Old Testament, corresponds in remarkable detail to these Old Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, Old Testament, New Testament, that's a lot of scholarship to boil down to just a few minutes. That's a lot of scholarship, a lot of study right there. If you want to study it more, I'd love to send you links. It's very helpful. It's very faith-affirming. It is great academic research. There are some of the best minds out there who are working on these subjects. It's really remarkable. And, And so, here's what it boils down to. You may not like what the Bible says, but that it says it, and that it said it back then, is not in dispute. It's not in dispute. Anyone who says otherwise is either, number one, they don't know what they're talking about. Number two, they're being dishonest. They're exaggerating. Or, number three, they're using scholarship that's at least 100 years old. What the Bible says is not really in dispute. So here's what that means. This... Is the whatever else you think of it, it is the an accurate copy of a very ancient book, a bunch of very ancient books. It is an accurate copy. The Old Testament, the old when you read the Old Testament, you're reading something that is over 2,000 years old and accurately reproduced for you in your own language. Over 2,000 years old, it all predates Jesus, most of it by centuries. Because by Jesus' time, they had already codified the Old Testament. They already called it by its three parts. You can see Jesus call the Old Testament by the law and the prophets. They called it the law and the prophets and the writings. They already had it broken down into its parts by the time Jesus was alive. I mean, it is old. It is ancient. And you have it in your hands. In your language. An accurate, readable copy of some ancient ancient writings and your new testament i mean wow i mean your new testament it's hot off the press it's hot off the press of jesus's day written within decades of jesus life and israel by the people who knew him by the people who were part of this movement called the way that ultimately became the church i mean that's who wrote this down handwritten eyewitness accounts by these people who were part of that. It's amazing. What this collection of 66 books says and that it says it, and that it said it back then, it's not really in dispute. Which brings us to our other problem. What it says. What it says It says some things that make people think they can't trust it. They can't trust it. Next week, we're going to talk about the Bible and its relationship with science. Today, we're going to focus on some awkward things the Bible teaches. A big problem that a lot of people have today about the Bible is what it teaches. And you often hear two examples. I'm going to take just two examples. Uh, number one, the Bible's full of violence. And number two, the Bible approves of slavery. You hear both of those. And I think we ought to, I think sometimes even Jesus' fault, when you hear it, you're like, oh, I don't know exactly what to say about that. Uh, I want to touch on both of those today. And along the way, along the way, I want to point out some, some intellectual dishonesty uh, by a lot of Christianity's critics. First, the Bible is full of violence. Yes, that's true. The Bible is full of violence. Now, Sam Harris, he's an atheist. He died a few years ago, but he was one of these uh, well-known atheists who would written books and had followings, kind of like Richard Dawkins, and, and kind of the same ilk. And uh, he... he ha- Talked in this book called Letters to a Christian Nation. He talks about all these problems with Christianity. And here's one of the things that he says about the Bible and violence. I catch him in the middle of a sentence here, but he says there are obscene celebrations of violence that we find throughout the Old and New Testaments. You see these things thrown around. So what he's saying is there are obscene celebrations of violence. Not just violence, but celebrations of violence found throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament. That's what that sentence means when you look at it. And that's what he says. Obscene celebrations of violence. To say that there are obscene celebrations of violence throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, I want to call it hyperbole. You know, exaggeration. But hyperbole is for times when you're sitting around the campfire telling stories. And I've, you know had the men's retreat this weekend and there was hyperbole at the men's retreat it's okay men's retreats are filled with hyperbole it's all right books by academics are not supposed to be filled with hyperbole it doesn't match the genre of guys trying to make tight arguments so you can't just blow this off and saying oh he was just kind of excited you know Uh, he wrote it in his book Obscene celebrations of violence throughout the Old and New Testament. There are, no, there are no... Violence is not celebrated. And certainly, it's not celebrated throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament. I can't even think of what he was talking about in the New Testament unless he's talking about when you get to maybe to the book of Revelation and God is judging the earth, which is going to happen someday. And it's not a celebration... It is a sober description. So I don't even know what he's talking about in most cases. It's just bogus. But there is some truth to his claim. It's not that, but there's some truth to his claim. The Bible is filled with violence. It's filled with stories of rape and murder and war, almost, all, almost exclusively in the Old Testament. Now, not, that's not saying almost all the Old Testament. That's saying almost all of it, pretty much all of it, is in the Old Testament. Uh, so the Bible's filled with violence. I don't know if you've noticed, but so is the Union Bulletin. Okay? The Union Bulletin is filled with stories of rape and murder and war. Just because something contains violence doesn't mean that endorses violence. Now, we're gonna, that's not all I'm going to say, but let's just stop there. True, just because it contains descriptions of violence doesn't mean that it is endorsing violence. If you want to find violence throughout the Old Testament and anywhere in the New Testament, you'd have to say any description of violence is an endorsement. It's, it, uh, well, if, you Google, if you Google the Bible in violence, one of the first things that will pop up is some kind of comparison that someone did a few years ago. Comparing the references to violence in the Bible to references of violence in the Quran. All right? And uh, they concluded that Christianity is more violent than Islam because uh, the Bible contains more references to violence than the Quran. Well, that's not right, because references to violence are not the same as endorsements of violence. I've never read the Quran. I don't know, and I should read the Koran, and I should study it and get to know its contents more. I've never read it, so I can't say if it describes violence or endorses violence. And I'll tell you what, I'm not willing to look it up on the Internet. Do you know why I'm not willing to look it up on the Internet? Because the same misrepresentations of the Bible, the same sloppy academic assertions made about the Bible, I'm pretty sure they exist about the Koran, too. So I'm not going to find my information on the internet about the Quran unless I find it from a credible source. So, so I'm not willing to say the I don't know if Islam describes violence or endorses violence. Big subject in our culture right now. But here's what I can say. Just because the Bible describes more violence doesn't mean that it is a more violent faith or it's a violent faith And Islam. is not. References to violence are not the same as endorsements to violence. But there is a lot of violence in the Bible. Now, there are also some references to violence that trouble modern readers. Not just describing, but times when God seems to be commanding violence. There are times when God Himself, God Himself endorses uh, violence. He tells His people, Israel, now not the church, never the church, but yes, Israel, He does do this. He tells Israel to go to war, drive out their enemies, and destroy them. Now this, if you want to talk about violence in the Old Testament, let's talk about this. Uh, this is the most grievous presence of violence in the Bible. When God tells his people, Israel, I'm giving you this land. Now this is a unique time in Israel's history. He's giving them land uh, that he has promised them where he wants them to live. And he gives them permission to drive out the indigenous people who live there. He gives them permission to drive them out and, and uh, kill them. And this is a lot of it's in the book of Joshua. So, what are you going to say about that, Brad? You know, what about that? God endorsed violence. Well, yes, it happened. God wanted it to happen. That's what I'd say. I'd say He's God. He had a plan. He's at work in the world. It's His world, and this is part of His plan. God is the giver and taker of life. It's His call. That's the first thing I'd say. And I know that wouldn't be satisfying. The next thing I say would be this. One word. Context. Let's talk about context for a minute. Context. When you read the Bible in context, both on the macro level, the whole story of the Bible, the the story of God's work in the world and bringing salvation to the world, when you read the Bible in this in this macro level of context, what's happening in the scope of God, the history of God's working in the world, and then on the micro level, what's happening right there in this passage, you will not come to the same conclusion that, that critics want you to come to. Now, it's still violence, and God said, I want this to happen. But if you take it in context, you'll understand a number of things that are true. You'll understand, number, number one, that it's a rare event. This happened during a, a, a certain Specific period of time in Israel's history. And that's it. A unique time in history. It does not run through the whole Old Testament. It was not a blank check for Israel. If you read the Bible in context, you know that God said, I promise Israel, I'm going to give you the land between here and here and here and here. And I'm going to help you clear it out. He did not say, I'm going to give you this and then I just want you to keep going. Let's just see how big we can get. You know? Let's see if we can take over the world. No. No. God said, you can have it between here to here and here to here, and I'll help you get it. It's not a blank check. It's not a blank check, and it certainly does not include Christianity. It doesn't include Jesus. It doesn't include the church. It was a unique period of time for God to fulfill His promise to this nation as part of His working in the world. And uh, you'd also want to know, if you were looking at context, that the people God was displacing... Practiced incest and bestiality and child sacrifice? You'd also want to know, you'd also see from context that God had already given this nation, these people, these indigenous people, 400 years to clean up their act. 400 years for them to clean up their act. You would also discover that God saved people from uh, from those indigenous peoples. God spared certain people who turned to him. One of them was named Rahab. She was a prostitute. She was a prostitute. She sold her body for, for sex, to provide sex. That was her living. And as she reaches a point where she turns to God, the God of Israel, God spares her. Not only does God spare her, but if you read the Bible, you'll understand she became an ancestor of Jesus himself. Crazy. Context. Read the whole Bible and understand it. And then it, it, it takes away so many of these objections. Now, I know that doesn't remove all your queasy feelings. Context. You're like, well, still God did that. All right, doesn't take away all your queasy feelings, but it shows that there's more to the story. Doesn't it? It shows there's more to the story than what your prof Told you or wants you to think, or what that magazine article, that thing so and so sent you on the internet, what they want you to think, it, it shows there's more to the story than the Bible celebrating and endorsing violence in the name of God. That's not what critics want you to think. They want you to think the Bible encourages and endorses violence in the name of religion. They have an agenda, they want people to be afraid of religion exclusive opinions about God are why people get killed that's what they want you to think and Christianity is not any different than that they want you to think the Bible endorses and encourages violence it does not it does not you know we're not talking about things like self-defense and national policies and those kinds of things you know specifically but we're talking about Christianity following Jesus so is there violence in the Bible yes Uh, Just like there's violence in the news, the Bible records a lot of violence. Is there violence endorsed in the Bible? Yes, in a couple of circumstances. Very unique, very rare, unique moments in history that have been over for thousands of years. Don't apply to us. Don't give us any freedom to do the same things that they did. If you look up violence in the Bible on the Internet, that's not what you're going to find. It's context. One simple rule of reading the Bible. Context. I'm going to give you another one in just a minute. So, that's one problem, violence in the Bible. Let's take the other problem, uh, and that is the Bible endorses slavery. So you read this periodically. Uh, the, the Bible endorses slavery. Now, there are regulations in the Old Testament that regulate uh, the treatment of slaves. And, uh, but you don't read any regulations against having them. And then in the New Testament, you read that uh, uh, slaves are to obey their masters, and you go like, "Yikes! What's up with this?" You know, the Bible, not you know, it's not criticizing slavery; it's saying slaves obey your masters. And and here's what you need to know about slavery. We're going to hit on this just briefly. The key word in this case is not cult- uh, is not is not context; it's culture. You also have to take into account culture when you read the Bible. And we as 21st century Americans, when we hear the word slavery, we think. Civil War. We think slavery in the United States as it's practiced up to the Civil War. We might think sex trafficking today. We might think about forced labor. But this is not what slavery was in the Old Testament culture. It's not what slavery was in first century Palestine. Uh, that's, not, that's not the same kind of slavery. Ironically, slavery practiced back then was more compassionate than it was practiced in America in the American, much of the American South 200 years ago. Americans, Americans practice what, what's called chattel slavery. That means your slave is your chattel, your property, where they uh, owned 100% of that person. The slavery that's, that we, is in the first century is not chattel slavery. It's not an ownership of the whole person. Uh, when you read the word slave in the Bible, that's not what you're talking about. There wasn't a tremendous difference between being a slave and a, being a free person. In those days, it was more of an economic status, and, a, and, a, and a, uh, it was more of an economic status than it was a level of freedom. You weren't owned by someone; your, your your skills and your productivity was owned, but you as a person were not owned. Slaves weren't segregated; they looked and dressed like other people. Uh, they could even work for their own freedom. They were not enslaved for life. Usually, uh, maybe till their thirties. In some cases, into their thirties a little bit. But it wasn't the same kind of thing. They could work for their freedom. Uh, Now, I'm not saying it was rosy to be a slave. Uh, They were at the low end of the uh, socioeconomic scale. And even though the Bible doesn't flat out condemn slavery, you also acknowledge it doesn't flat out condemn a lot of other things that were social ills of, of the day. What it does do is it speaks to a much bigger ethic. That covers slavery and everything else, because it teaches jesus followers to be compassionate and loving and forgiving and generous. It speaks of grace and mercy, so it addresses slavery not specifically but on the larger level, so that ultimately it is because of Christianity that slavery began to uh, phase out in the in the years after the uh, after the uh, growth of the church. And it is because of Christianity that slavery met its end in England. And it's ultimately because of Jesus' followers that slavery met its end in the United States. And we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. Now, were there slave owners, Christian slave owners, who tried to cite the Bible as support? But yeah, yeah, but they did the same thing. They're guilty of the same things our critics are guilty of. Context and culture. So, uh, even though the Bible doesn't specifically call for the end of slavery, the slavery of the American South was not the same as the slavery of the Roman first century. And actually, it was the teachings of Jesus that brought about the end of slavery here. And continues to motivate people to fight against sex trafficking and forced labor and those kinds of things today. So, the caution is this. It's the caution of culture. When you read the Bible... You're reading across thousands of years of culture. You're reading into ancient cultures. They're not exactly the same as ours. We need to remember that. Now, truth be told, some Christians throughout history have practiced the same kinds of abuses uh, that we've talked about today. Christians have, have cited the very passages that critics have, have uh, cited as justification for violence and justification for slavery. But they're guilty. They broke the same rules of culture and context and other uh, uh, ways of approaching the Bible. They broke the same rules that that our critics break, and it doesn't justify their conclusion. So, what I hope this morning does is at least puts to rest some of your automatic pushback against the Bible as unreliable and offensive. I hope it just helps you know, there's a little bit more to this story and I should find out maybe the other side instead of just listening to what my prof told me today about Jesus. I hope it might put some of your objections to rest, but even if it doesn't totally put all these concerns to rest, I hope it shows you there's some nuance to these criticisms. There's more than you would think. There's context and culture, and these are just a couple of things you have to consider. Because the truth is, the Bible is an amazing book. It's an amazing library. It's not a book. It's it's a library of books. And it's a history of God's working in the world, but it's big. It's really big, and it's old. So you have to learn to read it. It's big and old, and it means you have to learn to read it. There are actually guidelines for learning to read the Bible. They're the same kinds of guidelines that you practice in any kind of literature, context, culture, but you have to apply them. The Bible's not a magic book filled with magic teachings that you open up and try to find a magic thing that will help you today. That's not what the Bible is. You can't read the Bible like that. But if you learn to read the Bible according to these general principles, and anyone can do it, and they're the same principles you use, they're not loophole principles to get out of things, you don't. they're just the same principle you use to approach any piece of literature. And if you do, you, will, you learn to read the Bible like that, much of the Bible will begin to fall into place. And then you encounter the third problem. Because once you start to read the Bible the way it's meant to be read, you begin to understand it. And once you begin to understand the Bible, it means you begin to understand the God that it points to. And the Jesus it reveals. And once you begin to understand the God that it points to and the Jesus it reveals, you begin to understand that you and God don't see eye to eye on everything. You don't, you don't see eye to eye on everything. And you begin to experience what Mark Twain said about the Bible. He said, it's not the parts I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. Well, that's the part that's going to begin bothering you because you're going to encounter a God who is not exactly like you would design Him. He's not going to be exactly like you would like Him to be. He's a person. What other person do you agree with 100%? God is a person. And uh, he's a person who's never wrong. Unlike another person you might not agree with, and sometimes you think you're the right one, he's a person who's never wrong. It's like something I read this week on Twitter. The old radio preacher J. Vernon McGee said this. He said, this is God's universe, and God does things His way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. He's right. You don't have a universe. God does. He's God. He's God. You don't get to decide. He gets to decide. And that's the rub of the Bible. It's not so much how we got it. It's not so much what it says. It's what it means for me. That it rubs against me. God as He is. Even Jesus as He is. Not exactly how I would design Him. And who's supposed to adjust in that relationship? I am. And any real relationship requires adjustment. If you encounter the Bible, it's going to require your adjustment. And that's going to be the hard part. And here's what I'd say. If you'll read the Bible in an honest and informed way, read it honestly. Read it in an informed way. You'll be amazed at what it has to offer. You'll be amazed at the amazing God that it portrays. You'll be amazed at how perfectly Jesus fits and fulfills everything else in the Bible. Amazing. You'll begin to see that Jesus is the perfect completion and complement to everything else that the Bible is about. And you might actually like Jesus all the more for it and appreciate the fit between Jesus and the, the, the Bible that tells us about him. And the Bible that he appreciated so much. So if you like Jesus, take another look. The book that he liked so much. Take another look at the book that tells us what he was like and see if you don't begin to see what Jesus' followers have said for 2,000 years. That the Bible is so full of truth and insight, it's such a living collection of truth. You might actually find that there's more to it than you might have thought. And that's the challenge I have for you this morning. Thanks. Let's pray. Father, my prayer is that you will continue to teach us as we look for truth. We want to know truth. And as we look for truth and as we seek you, I pray that you will teach us about what you're really like. And for the person here who's really trying to understand uh, more about the Bible so that they can uh, assess it and, and assess its relationship to the Jesus that they want to like... I pray that you'll help them, that you'll lead them. I pray that you will ultimately point them to the truth of Jesus and that we know know the truth of Jesus and because of who Jesus is and how he regarded these writings that we have today, that uh, we also would see them in the same way that he did. Pray for the person here who's really wrestling with these things, that you'll lead them to truth through your Holy Spirit. And I pray for those of us Jesus followers, that you'll strengthen our faith and also strengthen our ability to reflect uh, these truths to the people in our paths in this valley. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.